1: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Welcome to the Intelligence Square podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're bringing you part one of our live event, Bark vs. Beethoven. This event was hosted by the BBC's Rita Chakrabarti, who was joined by world-renowned cellist Stephen Isselis for Bark and acclaimed music critic Norman Lebrecht for Beethoven. Mishka rushdie Moman accompanies this conversation on the piano. Part two and three of this event are available ad-free for subscribers now. And for our listeners who don't subscribe, part two will be available in our next episode. This event took place in April 2023 in Cadogan Hall, London.
2: Thank you very much and good evening everyone. It's wonderful to see such a great turnout for what promises to be a lively, entertaining, informative and I'm sure inspiring event. And thank you too for being willing to participate in this perfectly preposterous notion that you can choose between Beethoven and Bach. (laughs) There is nothing rational about this. We happily admit that. We ask you to just suspend reason and go with emotion. Just go with it and listen to the arguments. Imagine yourselves on a desert island perhaps that there you are for two months you're stuck with one composer, who would you listen to? I, of course, have my own feelings, but as a BBC lifer, you'll understand that I will <laughs> remain completely impartial. To help you decide between the two composers, we have two very eloquent and highly competitive speakers. Before I introduce them, though, I'm going to ask you to submit your pre-vote to get a sense of where you stand right now. So. Please do now vote for either Bach or Beethoven using the QR code coming up on the screen. If you're unsure, vote undecided. So Bach, Beethoven or undecided. I'll announce those pre-vote results shortly. While you're doing that, let me introduce our speakers. probably don't need any introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Stephen Isilis world-renowned cellist, author, and broadcaster. He has a multifaceted career as a soloist, a chamber musician, and educator. He appears regularly with the world's leading orchestras and works with many living composers. And his latest book is The Bach Cello Suites, A Companion. On my left is Norman Lebrecht, historian, cultural commentator, broadcaster, and award-winning novelist, who has written 12 books about music. His blog, Slipdisk, is the world's most popular cultural news site, drawing two million readers every month. And his new book is Why Beethoven? A Phenomenon in 100 Pieces. Norman will be making the case for Ludwig van Beethoven. Stephen will be making the case for JS Bach. But of course, we need more than just the arguments to get a sense of the real powers of these two musical giants. We actually need to hear the music itself, of course, so it's a huge pleasure to also welcome Mishka rushdie Moman. She is an acclaimed concert pianist who appears in recitals and concerto performances worldwide. Her musical partners have included one, Stephen Isilis, with whom she recorded four recitals at the Wigmore Hall during the COVID-19 lockdown. She's also played with Joshua Bell, Anthony Marwood, Midori and members of the Indelian, Balsia, Orion, and Artemis string quartets. And Mishka will be accompanying Stephen when he advocates for Bach and also playing Beethoven for Norman. So just before we hear the results of that first vote, can I ask you both, Stephen, what was the moment at which you thought it's Bach?
3: I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's always been Bach, really. But hang on, I have to say, I'm slightly uncomfortable being in the position of being supposed to be versus Beethoven. I worship Beethoven. I adore Beethoven. But I also worship Bach, and I adore Bach. And I'm not going against Beethoven. I'm just seizing an opportunity to, to extol the genius of Bach. And I suppose if I had to sum them up in sound bites, for me, Bach is God and Beethoven is the finest, noblest human spirit ever. Hmm. So, which doesn't answer your question, does it? <laughs> um, I, spe- I don't know, maybe when I played the first piece, I can, but actually, no, when I was a little boy, I used to go to sleep to, to the sound of my father practising Bach's Chacon downstairs, so maybe it was then.
4: Hmm. Okay. Norman? I don't know when it begins with Beethoven. Again, probably all of my life. I I mean, I'm not here to bury Bach. I'm here to reappraise him in light of Beethoven, without whom music would not have gone forward. Beethoven was probably most important to me with the descent of COVID, with our isolation, and with a sense, I'd started writing the book about three months beforehand, with a sense of empathy that I got in my own isolation with Beethoven's state of not being able to communicate through deafness. And one felt there was no other composer I wanted to live with, no other composer who could speak so intently to that moment. So yes, I mean, Beethoven, it has to be Beethoven.
2: Well, what is it that Beethoven does to you? Because music is so emotional.
4: There is the emotion, there is the intellect, there is the ambition, there is the sense of forward propulsion. He never looks back.
2: Right. Stephen, with Bach?
3: I think Bach has everything. I mean, he's, as I said, he's like a god. He's perfect. He's sublime. But he's also so human. He understands every human emotion. And for me, also lockdown, I spent some time listening to the late Beethoven quartets, which was revelatory, but I also heard, and I'm ashamed to say it was for the first time, but I'd sort of been keeping it as a treat, Bach's Mass in B minor. Oh my God, it's so overwhelming. I mean, yes, there's there's never a rough edge in a way, although there can be anger and violence, but it's all within a sublime perfection. But it's so touching. He just he understands every human emotion, like Shakespeare does, I suppose, and he can express it. And the, it was so comforting to listen to his music during lockdown and many, many other times. He's a God who who really cares about us.
2: Mm. So interesting, you both mentioned lockdown, how important these composers were to you. We'll hear more about, I have to say, in just a moment. I just want to announce the first vote results. You are a very split audience. We have 45% for Bach, 42% for Beethoven, and 13% undecided. So as all politicos know, it's the 13% that you have to play for. All right, gentlemen. Stephen, can I ask you to please make the case for JS Bach?
3: Okay, but I'm going to do it. I'm like Linus in his security blanket. I'm not happy unless I have a cello in my hand. <laughs> um, and I, since I do have a cello in my hand, Bach can speak for himself much better than I can speak for him. So I thought I'd start by playing the prelude of the first suite for cello. <laughs> There were some solo cello pieces written before that in Italy, but Bach could not possibly have known them. As for all intensive purposes, Bach was creating a genre there. And he just understands the cello perfectly. And that goes for every instrument. And of course, the voice, the organ, his instrument, the violin, his instrument, the viola, his instrument, the clavichord, his instrument, etc. He just understands everything. But Understanding an instrument is one thing, but the spirit, I think the radiance that comes through his music, that prelude, it starts off the six suites, it starts off basically the history of of solo cello music, but it's also, I find it so comforting somehow. It's just so warm, and it's just such love shining through it, I suppose. But it's also got the perfection that we associate with Bach, and it's perfection that... makes him so important in music history that every major composer, basically, had to pay homage to Bach. He influenced them because he brought music to a higher pitch, not literally a higher pitch, a higher (laughs) pitch of perfection. I suppose the danger is that people sort of look at his picture with a wig and looking quite stern And they think, oh yes, he's mathematically brilliant, you know, but he's not one of us, but he absolutely is. And the man had many children and you can hear it in his music. You can hear the joy. I mean, there's so much joy in his music and so much humour, maybe not laugh out loud humour necessarily, but humour that just makes you feel good, makes you feel he's having a good time, or maybe, He's God watching his children having a good time. There is that sort of joy and warmth in his music. And that's why I've chosen just one movement from his first gamba sonata. Of course it would have been gamba and harpsichord, but viola de gamba and harpsichord. But today it's cello and piano. And it's the last one, you know, it's one of reams of such pieces, but everyone you get to know you fall in love with because there's so much information there in every note and just as his first biographer said he could make a fugue seem as simple as a minuet and that's really that's why beethoven called him the immortal jove of harmony quite right anyway so we're playing oh i've got to keep an eye on the time when did i start okay it's going to be it's going to be 13 minutes um okay last minute of the first Gamba sonata that's Bach in a good mood which he very often is and don't think he was some distant academic he got into a sword fight with a bassoonist because he he told the bassoonist he sounded like a nanny goat (laughs) (laughs) and um, he got put in prison for other things he was and he also got into trouble for making music with a young lady in the organ loft um, he, was, he was a lad, Bach. He was full of fire and temperament. And apparently when he conducted, they said, it was like he had rhythm in every part of his body. But of course, there was another side besides the joy, besides the fire and the excitement. There's also this incredible profundity. And I thought I would play you without repeats, um, probably. No, I think, if we, I think I might have time for the repeats. The Saraban from the Fifth Suite. Now, this is, for me, the, the whole suite is, is the passion story for cello. And for me, this is the moment of the crucifixion where Christ is abandoned on the cross. But it doesn't matter whether you think that or not. It's such a portrait of loneliness. One of the highest, high points of music for me is Ebama is Dick and the St. Matthew Passion, where... Simon Peter realizes that the cock has crowed three times and he has denied Christ. And the aria that follows just sums up everything that we feel in moments you know, when we feel remorse, when we feel grief, it's everything. And this too, this saraband for me sums up loneliness and anguish, but it's not depressing. It's never depressing because there's a, a gain, a radiance to it, that it's, sublimates suffering through beauty. if you think about that piece, it also gives you into a glimpse of why Bach was such an influence. Because to say why it is so moving is impossible. There's no tune, there's no rhythmic interest, there are no chords. It's a miracle, I think, that piece. It's just the depth of emotion he can convey through just a few notes. And that is a huge influence even today on music. So I better finish. And I'm sorry, I slightly uh, sort of weighted on the slow pieces of Bach. And of course, as I said, like pieces like the Brandenburg concertos are just thrilling and exciting and full of verve and life. And of course, the Beatles used Brandenburgs, quoted the Brandenburgs, for instance because of just that rhythmic energy that, you know, it's funny to think that Bach influenced the Beatles, but he definitely did. We'd like to finish with a chorale prelude. And again, Bach in a few few notes, he just, he tells us he understands us. He makes our life better by talking to us in the voice of God.
2: Yes, of course. Stephen is saying he's just going to put his cello away. He will be back. Thanks to him for some very persuasive arguments and some absolutely stunning playing. With Mishka as well, I don't know about you, I feel a bit breathless listening to that. Norman has a hard act to follow,
0: but the stage is yours. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squad. Part two of this event will be available as our next episode. Subscribers can access all three episodes now. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequad.com.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world,